how he loves us, ever loves us, evermore, never changing. What a great focus, the deep, deep love of Jesus. As we begin the teaching part of our service, what I'd like to do would be to invite you to stand. Let's stand together as I pray to uh, continue this part of our service. Lord, thank you so much for that deep, deep love of Jesus that has saved us and made us yours forever. Thank you for that baptism that we were just able to witness that symbolizes for us the new life that has been added to the family of God through Jesus Christ because of that deep, deep love. Help us, Father, to see that love as the best. Help us to see that love as the source of true peace and rest, that it is relentlessly leading us to glorious life in your presence forever. And so, Father, I ask that you would guide us now as we embark on this study of your word this morning, that we may get a better taste of your love at work in our lives. And may you be glorified in our lives and in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today's study, if you notice in your bulletin, is entitled Living for the Will of God. Uh, some of you may recognize uh, what I'm holding here as a bicycle tire that is quite flat. Uh, so I'd like to ask the question, what does living for the will of God, a flat bicycle tire, and a major thunderstorm have in common? Uh, stay tuned as we embark on this study because we're going to find out. So if you will join me in this study, we will uh, find out what those three things have in common. Uh, where we were last week is uh, Peter was calling us to do good, to do good, knowing that God is watching over us to help us, to guide us. Then Peter went from that to prepare us for the reality that we will at times suffer because of doing good. So he calls us to do good and says, basically, oh, by the way, when you do good, there will be times that you suffer for it. And then he reminds us that Jesus made both of those possible. That is, he made possible that we can do good because we cannot do good on our own. And we cannot suffer well for doing good on our own. He made those things possible by suffering for our sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus, the righteous one, took our unrighteousness on him to give us his righteousness so that he could bring us to God. We talked about suffering. Uh, some of us uh, think that uh, since we're not having any major problems in our lives, that we're not really suffering. But, and I really believe that biblically we need to define suffering very broadly. It is anything that is difficult for you at any intensity. It can be from very mild and annoying to intolerable. So suffering encompasses a wide range in our lives but they all fall under that heading of suffering. And as I said last week, I'm going to say again, we as God's people need to have a very solid, very solid theology of suffering so as not to be shaken from our faith in God when those inevitable troubles come. 
I've seen so many people who had a weak theology of suffering that when hard times come, their faith collapses, not because God failed them, but because their understanding of who God is and where he is in their suffering was incomplete. It was inadequate. It was too weak. We need to have a solid theology of suffering. This week, Peter focuses on how God uses our sufferings to change us for the better, And I should say here that there is nothing inherently good in suffering. Sometimes it's easy for us to to say, ah, suffering, bring it on. No, there's nothing inherently good in suffering. Suffering is a part of the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of the world that we live in. But the beauty is that, that God takes those sufferings and because of Jesus Christ can turn them for his good purposes. Things that were meant to bring us down, to destroy us, to weaken us, God actually redeems those and rescues us from them and uses them, those things that were meant to harm us, to build us up. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 4. I please invite you to turn there to follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. As through the course of this message, we're not going to cover all the details, but we are going to look at the main themes of what Peter is trying to tell us here. So please follow along as I read. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers." Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter is saying here, it just struck me, uh, fills him with such wonder of who God is that he ends this section. He's not ending his letter. He ends this section with, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those of you who are taking notes, try to remember my major headings here. The first heading is, uh, no longer for human passions no longer for human passions. In verses 1 to 6, Peter lays out his main argument here. In verse 3, he talks about our life before coming to Jesus. He says, for the time past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, what the unbelievers want to do. He says, before Jesus, we were living for our own human sinful desires. 
We were doing what we wanted. We were longing after things that were forbidden by God. We were pursuing what makes us feel, go feel good. That's what, when he talks about sensuality and passions, we wanted what we wanted, when we wanted it, and how we wanted it, and we pursued those things in opposition to who God was. We were living for our own human desires. We just had our, the privilege of having my daughter and her husband and our 10-month-old, uh, I guess, Abraham, come visit us uh, last week. Uh, and Abraham provided a good example of that. Uh, it's all about him and his desires. Uh, if you know a, a, a baby, a baby wants what they want when they want it. And if you don't give them what they want when they want, uh, they let you know their displeasure about that. Or we may be sitting around the dinner table and we're talking and not paying attention and all of a sudden there are funny noises coming from the baby's chair as he's uh, coughing or clearing his throat or blowing raspberries, uh, saying, hey, I'm over here, please pay attention to me, you forgot about me. Peter here says, uh, the time is, that is past suffices for doing that. He said, you've had enough time living for yourself. So when... Uh, our grandson Abraham does these things, we, we sort of say, isn't that cute? But when he's five and doing these things, are they still going to be cute? No. We're going to say, you know, it, the time is past for those things. It's, it's time to stop thinking about yourself and to start thinking about other people. You've had more than enough time. It's time to move on. And that's what Peter is saying. Before we became Christians, we were pursuing our own desires. And Peter says, you've had enough time to do that. It's time to move on. And then backing up to verse 2, the reason that becomes, or the, the focus then, Peter says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. When Jesus comes into our life, God says that we change our focus. Our focus should change from that of pursuing our own desires to that of pursuing the will of God, to live for the rest of the time in this flesh, in this world, before we die, to live the rest of the time, no longer for our desires and our passions, but for the will of God. And then in verse 1, he says what makes it all possible, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ suffered in the flesh. Going back to chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It is possible for us to give up living for our own human passions and desires, not because we have the willpower to do it, but because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins that we can be forgiven and has given us his spirit within to change us into the people that he wants us to be. He makes it possible so that the rest of the time, the rest of our time in this world can be spent learning what is pleasing to the Lord, learning what it is to live for the will of God instead of living for our own selfish personal desires. If Jesus, the sinless one, Peter says, if Jesus suffered in the flesh, we should plan on doing the same thing. Because if the sinless one, Jesus, suffered while he was here in the flesh, how can we expect anything more? We should plan the same thing. We naturally try to avoid pain and suffering, but God uses our suffering in the flesh to help us stop sinning and to live for him. Now, Peter has already alluded to how this works in our lives, and this is what we're going to dig into a little bit. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 2, 
He talks about there in the middle of verse 2 of chapter 1, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the sanctification of the Spirit. When we come to Jesus Christ and by faith, God says that He comes to live within us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's work is to mold our character to be holy. That's what sanctification means, to be made holy, to be made like God, to be made good. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives at the inner places of our heart to change us so that we would no longer live for those human passions, but for the will of God. And then in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And if you remember, we talked about that. How is gold purified? Gold is purified, or at least it used to be in the old days. It's not now because they use chemical means. But in the old days, gold was purified by melting it down, putting it under intense heat, melting it down, and impurities would rise to the surface and they would skim those off. And what's interesting about that process, that's also the way you see how pure gold is. If you want to test its purity, you melt it down and you measure the impurities there and more pure gold will have fewer impurities come to the surface. Peter says that's the same way it is with our faith. God will use the sufferings and the trials of our lives to melt us down to melt us down, to take us to the end of ourselves. He applies the heat so that the impurities of our hearts will come to the surface so that we can see them and say, I didn't realize that's who I was. Not so that he can make us depressed, but that he can say, so that he can say, I can take those away. I can skim those away so that you will no longer live for yourself, but for me. So suffering that melts us down becomes a tool in God's hand to purify us and skim the impurities off. What I'd like to do, we'll bring the flat bicycle tire back. I'd like to share an example that uh, could be a fairly lengthy one, but it is worth the time because it illustrates the principles. I often ask God for practical examples out of my life, life and sometimes I have to go back weeks, months, or years, uh, and sometimes God is faithful to give me a current one, which he did uh, just last week. Uh, it's important for me to say that this example does not rise to the level of a cancer report from the doctor. It doesn't rise to the level of being treated badly at school by classmates or failing a course. It doesn't rise to the level of being fired from work. It doesn't rise to the level of the pain that we often feel as we get older. But the principles that I'm going to talk about here apply just the same for the whole range of suffering for those that are mild to those that are intolerable. I biked to work last Monday, as I often do. I'll bike to work to South Philadelphia. And at the end of the day, I actually closed things down a little early. I was trying to get home early to, in fact, start this message. A godly thing, right? This would be really a good thing. I want to get home, get started early on the message. And I got, uh, changed my clothes, packed everything up on the bike, and was ready to go. And uh, I knew it was going to be a, a threat of thunderstorms that day. So before I changed, I checked the radar. Uh, there were thunderstorms to the west. They were coming this way. But I looked at it, how fast they were moving. I said, you know, I think I have time. I know how long it's going to take me to get home. So I think we'll be okay. So as I loaded everything on my bike, got ready to go, closed the office door, rolled my bike out, my tire 
was flat. And not the front tire, if you bike, it was the rear tire that was flat. It's a little harder to change than the front tire. So not only was the tire flat, it was the back tire that was flat. So I had to turn the bike upside down, take the tire off. And I still haven't found the hole. That's why I have it here. Usually I patch it and put it back in. I had to put a whole new tube in. I still haven't found the hole. I have no idea where the hole is in this thing. So I have to find it. Well, I had to do a quick mental calculation that uh, am I going to fix this tire or am I going to take the bus home? So I decided I would fix the tire, praying all the time that God would get me home. I looked at my watch at the moment this happened, uh, just in case I would need this for future reference, and it took me about 25 minutes to change the tire, about 25 minutes from the time that I recognized it, made the mental calculation of what I was going to do, and I changed the tire. I prayed that God would get me home. So what happened in that moment? The flat tire was an opportunity for me to understand the motives of my heart, the me-first attitudes that I had in my heart. I had my plans, and as a matter of fact, they were godly plans because I wanted to study. I wasn't going home to kick back by the pool. I was going home to study God's Word to teach to you. That was a good thing, and God had delayed it. It was an opportunity for me to evaluate, am I going to trust God with my schedule, or am I going to get angry with Him uh, because He just disrupted my plans? This was a test of my faith. It was melting me down, but it was also a purifier. It was an opportunity for me to see that I needed to trust God in the situation, and I recognized that, fortunately, at the time, uh, and recognized that that was happening. As I left, finally changed the tire, I turned west towards Havertown, and as I turned west to, towards Havertown from Philadelphia, the sky was getting darker and darker and darker, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed that God would get me home before the storm hit. And what would you say if I told you that I made it home just in the nick of time? Pulled into the garage, got my stuff out, and just as I went through the front door, those few little raindrops that were coming down for the last couple miles turned into a deluge with heavy winds, and I got into the house just in the nick of time, you would say with me, God is so good, and his timing is perfect, perfect. The 25 minutes I lost were the 25 minutes that he needed to get me home at just the right time. You would say, God hears prayer, and he answers prayer. Unfortunately, no, not unfortunately is not the right word. Alternatively, that is not how it worked out. That is not how it worked out. How it happened is I was coming up out of Upper Darby from State Road. You know that hill there from State Road coming up towards Pekas. Usually a hill I don't have much trouble with. As I was going up, it started raining. The sky was getting darker. And the wind, which was horrible, it's the worst wind I've ever felt, I almost didn't make it to the top of the hill. What a wimp on a bicycle. I couldn't even make it up the hill. I barely made it up the hill because of the wind, and I certainly barely made it up the hill before the deluge started, just in time to get to the covered bus stop just on this side of Pekas. I'm standing on the ground under this bus stop with my bicycle there, suddenly realizing I can't even stand here. I was standing on the bench because it was raining and blowing so hard. I was getting wet just standing there. I was, so here I am standing on the bench. What a humiliated bicyclist <laughs> standing here in the rain. 
As I was standing there pondering this, wondering what God was doing, I happened to think, you know, I should check this out. So I looked at the clock on my bike. Guess how far away from home I was? 25 minutes. I was exactly the amount of time away from home that that flat tire cost me. Totally coincidence, right? Not only that, my suffering affected Laurel. She was at home getting dinner, lovingly getting dinner ready for me. And she's texting and saying, should I come and get you? I said, no, no, I'm going to wait till this blows over. Should I come and get you? No, no, I'm going to wait till this blows over. I'm coming to get you. This is not blowing over. <laughs> so she spent a half hour of her time in the middle of getting dinner ready to come get me. So my suffering didn't just affect me. It affected her as well. So what do we say now? God is not so good. He really missed that one. He obviously doesn't love me. And he obviously wasn't listening to my prayers for help. If the first version of the story was true, you would be rejoicing with as you did. We all joined into my celebration that I got home just in the nick of time. But that's not how it happened. God and his sovereign will determined that I should get caught in that storm by just the amount of time that it took for me to change this flat tire. Did God's goodness change just because it didn't work out the way I wanted? Did God suddenly turn deaf? Did he not understand? No. Jesus used the suffering to reveal to me my inward and sinful desires and then to realize that Jesus died for that sin God's Spirit is at work in me to transform me at the heart level into a person who lives for Him. I don't understand why that happened. I have no clue why that happened. I'm not standing here sharing this story because, oh, now I know why that happened. I have no idea why that happened. But when I can't understand why suffering comes into my life, when I can't see the good, am I willing to trust God? And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or how many of us have been in a situation where we could see how things were going to work out and they did not work out that way and we were disappointed. And instead of saying, God, you're so good, we're saying, God, where were you? Instead of saying, God answers prayer, we're saying, God, did you hear me? Instead of saying, God, thank you for understanding me, we say, God, do you really know what I'm going through down here? Is God good? These principles apply to all of our suffering, whether it's from mild to intolerable. They are all an opportunity for us to grow in our trust of God that He is always only good and does what is best for us. Even when, especially when, we can't understand it or see what the good is, are we willing to trust that God is good? God uses suffering in our lives to help us to learn to live for God and not ourselves. God uses suffering in our lives to help us learn to live for God and not ourselves. In verse 7, chapter 4, Peter goes on. He says, The end of all things is, is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Those of you are taking notes, this is the second main heading, for the sake of your prayers. In 1 John 4, 15, John says this, if, And if we know that he hears us, I'm sorry, and the back to verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. So Peter goes on from this discussion about suffering, about learning to live no longer for our own human desires, but for the will of God, right into prayer. Why? Because how many times are our prayers guided by our own selfish desires? Our prayers are guided by what we want to get out of the situation, by what, how we think things should work. And God says through Peter, no, we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded in these areas. We need to be freed from our own selfish desires so that we can think clearly enough to pray for ourselves and others with the mind of God. We need to be willing to learn what it, the mind of God is in suffering instead of putting our own human desires and passions into that. And so our, even our prayers are affected by our suffering because what does suffering do for us? When things are going smoothly, what's our prayer life like? It's often not as strong as it should be. But what happens when the suffering comes? We're on our knees saying, God, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your understanding. We're depending upon him. We're putting aside our own desires to learn what is pleasing to him. God uses suffering in our lives to help us to learn to live for God and not ourselves. And that includes in our prayer life. The third heading starts at verse 8 through verse 11, and that is keep loving one another. Peter says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. Learning to live for God and not ourselves enables us to better love one another. Learning to live for God and not for our own human desires enables us to love one another better. He says love earnestly. Don't just love, but love earnestly. Love intensely. Love eagerly. Love without ceasing. And there's an interesting repetition of this phrase in Peter. If you look over at chapter 1, verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. He calls us to love one another as an outgrowth of having been born again. See, we cannot love one another the way we should if we've not been born again. We can only love when God removes our sinful selfishness and causes us to be born again to his family. Before we are born again into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, we are living for ourselves. We may be living religiously for ourselves, or we may be living irreligiously for ourselves, but we are living for ourselves. It is only when Jesus Christ comes into our life and changes us that our sins are forgiven and that we can begin to learn what it is to live not for ourselves but for God, and that includes what it is to love one another. So then when he gets back here to chapter 4, verse 8, and he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, it's rooted in the fact that God has loved us. He has forgiven us, and his spirit was, is within us to enable us to love one another with the love that he has loved us. And he says the reason for that is that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Once we are forgiven and our attitudes are transformed, we can love one another, we can pursue one another, we can stop avoiding those who rub us the wrong way because love covers a multitude of sins. 
I've often thought of what is a good analogy for love covering a multitude of sins? What does that look like? And you know what I think the best analogy is? It's clothing. Just think what is underneath your clothing. What scars are under there that no one knows but you? What deformities are there that no one knows but you? What things are under your clothing that no one knows but you? Well, you and God. Our clothes cover a multitude of sins. That is what we are to do for one another. We are to love one another enough that if you have a No, you don't have any. I do. If I have a personality quirk that bugs you, or if I have something that, you know, just is not quite right, I'm just not living quite right, but you know what? It's not outright sin. It's just something I need to grow up in. Are you willing to love me enough to love me anyway and not avoid me? Are we willing to cover, let our love cover a multitude of sins? That doesn't mean that you never go to a brother. If if you saw me walking to the edge of the stage about ready to fall off, I would hope you would say something. It says, oh, love covers a multitude of sins. No, you would love me enough to warn me that it was happening. But sometimes there are things that happen in our lives that don't rise to the level of we're going to walk off the edge of the cliff that we need to just let go. Not because we're ignoring it, but because we're actively loving one another. And he says that shows up in a couple of ways. In verse 9, he says, show hospitality to one another. Show hospitality. Show love of strangers or a love of guests. Do you love guests? Do you love strangers? Do you show hospitality? Do you invite strangers to your home? Do you invite strangers out to lunch? Do you invite guests? Do we show hospitality towards one another or do we come out of our fortresses in our homes and we come here and then we go back to our fortresses and we never mix? Do we show hospitality? And he says, do it without grumbling, without grumbling. That's interesting. So we can be hospitable and grumble the whole time. We should do it unselfishly and freely. Then he says, Whoever, as each has received a gift, in verse 10, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. If you have a gift, you should be using it not for your own selfish purposes, but for the service of one another, the service of one another. If we speak something, we should strive to speak God's truth. If we serve, we should do so by God's strength. Whatever we do, we should serve as unto the Lord. Well, what does this have to do with suffering? Well, suffering affects our ability and our willingness to love because when we suffer, who are we prone to think about? Ourselves. If I am suffering, I'm going to turn my thoughts to me. And Peter says, no, when Jesus suffered, he suffered for you. You should arm yourselves with the same purpose, that when you are suffering, you need to not turn inward, but you need to turn upward first to him and then outward to those around you. Don't let your suffering stop your love for one another. And it's the suffering that we go through that transforms our lives into those that live for ourselves to those who will live for God. God calls us to love one another earnestly, earnestly. He calls us into deep, meaningful relationships. So God uses suffering in our lives to help us learn to live for God and not ourselves. Let's just have a few concluding thoughts here. Peter calls you to live for God and not your own desires. He calls you to pray according to God's will. 
He prays you to live or to love earnestly. But we need to recognize that the road to living for God goes through suffering. The road to praying well goes through suffering. The road to loving one another earnestly goes through suffering. God wants to make you like him. And he knows it is not naturally easy. Suffering can change us because of God within us. The suffering melts us down and reveals the impurities. It reveals us where we're living for ourselves. It reveals where our prayers are self-focused. It reveals where our love is inadequate and incomplete and not matching up to God's love for us. And then the Spirit begins to transform our lives as we come to Him and say, God, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for failing to live for you. Forgive me for living for myself. Please change me and transform me. And then what does Peter say is the whole point of all of this? It's in verse 11, the last half. He says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And as I reflected on this passage, (coughs) I looked at verse 1 and 2 with verse 11, and I really think that's Peter's point. So I'm going to read those together, skipping everything in the middle. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God's goal is that we would live for him so that he would receive the glory through Jesus Christ that we would live for him, we would pray for him, we would love for him. As we close with a moment of silent reflection, I'd like us just to spend a few moments reflecting on areas of life where God may be working to help you to live no longer for your desires, but for the will of God. Perhaps it's something in your lifestyle, perhaps it's something in your prayers, perhaps it's something with your love for one another, for us here or your love elsewhere. But let's just spend a few moments in silent reflection and then I'll close in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that by your death and resurrection, you forgave our sins and you gave us new life. Thank you that you are at work in our lives by the presence of your Holy Spirit to enable us to no longer live for our own desires, but for what pleases and honors you. Thank you, Father, that you love us enough that you will not quit until your work in us is complete. Thank you that though we were lost, you brought us in. Thank you that though that you have set us free from our slavery to sin. Thank you that you are for us and not against us. You have chosen us and promised to never forsake us. Lord, I ask 
earnestly that you would help us to learn more and more to live not for ourselves, but for you and for your will, by your grace, for your glory, because to you belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.